0: What's up, everybody? Today is Tuesday, October 20th, 2020, or 10 20, 20, 20 This is a Talk in the Attic, and I am your host in the Attic, Kirk Ross. How are you doing? As in, how are you doing? Yes, you. By now, we're weeks into cozy season, or as my mom would say, cozy season... Depending on from where exactly you're tuning in, the romance associated with that time of year in late September when you first put on your favorite hooded sweatshirt has been replaced by the horrific realization that winter is coming. Do you mind if we go back to that introductory phrase for a moment? I know it's a little early for a deep dive into grammar, but this one's a doozy. So please, won't you join my newest alter ego in our newest segment called Uncle Greg's Grammar Garden. Welcome to Uncle Greg's Grammar Garden. Today, we're going to have a look-see at the pesky preposition where in tarnation they ought to be placed. In this case, Kirk placed himself in the unenviable position of having to make sense out of a whole boatload of prepositions and in such a short, introductory phrase. And while I know y'all remember exactly what a preposition is, I'm going to submit a quick definition just as a reminder A preposition, according to Oxford, is a word governing and usually preceding a noun or a pronoun and expressing a relation to another word or element in the clause. As in, the man on the platform. Or she arrived after dinner. Let old Uncle Greg rattle a few off the old noodle here, and not because you don't already know, I mean, I know you already know, but just because it's good for this old chunk of coal to do some remembering on occasion prepositional pairs those are fun on off in out above below before after apart within but on every preposition has a pale and that's okay because some of the most common ones fly solo like our friend from which in fact is included in the very phrase that we're looking at today because Kirk must have recalled that sentences aren't traditionally allowed to end in a preposition at least not formally So in this case, he worked hard to avoid doing so by using the classic device, from where. That way, he didn't have to say, depending on where you're tuning in from. See, it ends in from. You can't do that. So he took care of that one. Instead of, depending on where you're tuning in from, he got all fancy on us and muttered, depending on from where you're tuning in. And I must admit, seeing the words on, from, and where, back to back to back, doesn't sit well with me. But it is technically an improvement over the alternative. But see, in clumsily resolving his first issue here, Kirk exposed yet another one buried just below the surface. Because now the introductory phrase is ending with a preposition in. And to me, this just seems silly. He went through all that gosh darn trouble to fix the from, only to go in and leave the in? Then again, what might he have done here? What could he have done here? Uncle Greg fancies himself an expert, sure, but even he can't make this one sound right. How's this one? Depending on from where and into which you're tuning. But that's not exactly a step in the right direction, now is it? Sounds more like something some fancy big city stage actor might say when reciting a passage from old Bill Shakespeare or something. So while I'd hate to do this, particularly on my first appearance on the show, I must side here with the informal and casually accepted allowance of ending that phrase... In a preposition. In from. And it's not easy to side here with informality. Especially not when I've already got an uphill battle seeing as how I am a fish out of water when it comes to the grammar world. Most of the erudite elites with whom I'm constantly communicating already think of me as a dummy. What, just because I was born in the South doesn't mean I know about subordinate clauses? Sure, I might sound a little different, but you bet your bottom dollar that I'm well versed in the idea of bare infinitives. And if any of you snobs are listening, then hear me loud and clear with this superlative. F*** you! Whoa, 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 whoa. Uncle Greg. Uh, I know it's not fair, but what do we always say? That's right. This is how they expect you to act. So don't let those snobby sons of senators win. Wow. Listen, as it stands now, if I'm being honest, I'm not sure that I liked it. That was Uncle Greg's first contribution to the Attic, and honestly, probably his last as well, pending some outpouring of support for him. And while I disagree with the ruling on how I might have better handled that tricky phrase up top, Uncle Greg did shine a light on something that I think bears investigating. Somewhere in that end of segment meltdown, Greg made clear that people associate his accent with stupidity, his birthplace with academic inferiority. And in a way, we all did the same thing to poor Uncle Greg when he first came out, didn't we? I bet the bulk of you expected that the addict's resident grammar expert would have had an upper class, upper west side accent. Maybe someone that sounds like this. Even those of you listening from the south, you expected something completely different from Uncle Greg. And that's totally natural. As part of human evolution, we've grown adept at using whatever limited information we have to make quick decisions and quick evaluations. And today's episode is going to be all about my favorite cognitive bias, confirmation bias. But before we get all confirmatory on our long-held biases, let's start the show. I imagine that some of you fast-forwarded through the grammar bit in search of a more comedic topic, only to find me talking about cognitive biases, but that's what we're going to do, okay? We're talking confirmation bias, but it's going to be fun. Say it quick, and like you mean it, this episode is going to be fun. One more time. This episode is going to be fun. Perfect. Because now your brain will trick you into finding evidence that supports this optimistic mantra. This episode is going to be fun. And whether it actually is fun or not remains to be seen. But it's also not that important. Because it's only natural for all of us to preserve our prior hell beliefs than it is to challenge or change them. And this, my friends, is a confirmed basis for confirmation bias. Let's define it more clearly. Confirmation bias is a highly prevalent cognitive bias marked by the tendency to search for, interpret, favor, and recall information in a way that only confirms or supports our prior beliefs or values. Perhaps now, more than any time in history, this phenomenon is on full display. Confirmation bias explains how two people from nearly identical backgrounds can be presented with identical data and yet walk away with two completely opposite conclusions. Confirmation bias explains that in a situation like this, the conclusions at which each person arrived were simply derived from whatever conclusion they'd made on the subject beforehand. Look, the human brain likes familiarity. It seeks out familiarity. Why? Because familiar things, by and large, and historically, are safer things. As an artifact of primitive survival, we still possess an inherent ability to evaluate situations the moment we are presented with an image or a sound or a smell, whatever the information. When we're presented with something familiar, our nervous system relaxes our stress response. Since, after all, we've already been exposed to this and we live to see the day. So how dangerous could it be? But on the opposite side of that, when we're presented with something unfamiliar, we go into full-blown flight or fight mode on its face and from a primitive sense, this makes total sense. It does more than make sense, it's kept us alive. So let's do a little visualization exercise. If you can do so safely, close your eyes and imagine along with me. Imagine you're pulling into your parking spot at home. Maybe you're in your driveway, maybe on the street, maybe you're pulling into your garage, Maybe you even walked or rode your bike to work today. Either way, you're finally home after a difficult day in the rat race. You grab your bag and your empty water bottle and you head for the front door. After a day full of complexity, you long for a simple night at home. You can almost taste that first sip of wine. You can feel your favorite blanket. And as you reach for the doorknob to make your way in you think about your spouse, who hopefully will bear resemblance tonight to who he or she was when you first started dating. And while it hasn't happened in quite a while, you leave a little sliver of hope that tonight is the night that you'll be swept off your feet and waited on like royalty. And even if it doesn't happen, at least you're at home, with only the things you know and love. No surprise phone calls, no bosses or clients stopping in unexpectedly, Ah, you say to yourself Home sweet home And as you traverse through the threshold You can almost feel the stress of the day melt away You're almost in heaven As you continue to open your big, safe, secure, protective, familiar front door And just as it swings fully agape You peer up in anticipation of a familiar smile And right there, just a few arm's length away, right where your partner ought to be, stands a 500-pound lion. It's jarring, right? And if your primary instinct is to survive, which it almost certainly is, then your best bet here is to run. Clearly, this sort of autonomic response to a dangerous physical situation is imperative, necessary for our survival. But as our lives have grown increasingly safe from imminent danger, we humans have evolved to use these same judgment shortcuts in non-threatening situations too. Subconsciously, we make a snap judgment in every single instant that we're presented with new information. And just like we wanted to run away from the bloodthirsty lion, we tend to run away from less tangible surprises too. Maybe we don't physically turn around and run for the hills, but our brains execute a version of flight by ignoring dissonant facts. By ignoring facts that don't align with our own beliefs. And exactly how this ignorance manifests assumes infinite forms. But you better believe things like racism and sexism are two such examples. In fact, I had two experiences just yesterday that led me down this topical path today. First, I should inform you that last night marked my first experience in political phone banking. As for my overall performance, I can't say that I flipped any voters. But I definitely picked up a dozen new listeners for the podcast, that's for sure. <laughs> I should point out here that I'm just kidding. That I didn't actually use party funds to promote this show. That would be misappropriation of campaign funds, and that's something that only the candidates themselves should be allowed to do, right? The real story... Last week's guest, Tracy Domitz, urged me to join the group that she leads, the one that spends each and every Monday night calling real people in real voting districts to discuss real politics. And whoa, what an intimidating and nerve-wracking affair that all turned out to be. I think I eventually found my groove, but those first few calls were brutal. My first one was met with, come on, man, I'm trying to eat with my family right now. Tell you what, I'll talk with you, but only if you pay me. Can you pay me? I stuttered some inane response before apologetically letting him go. Several people went into the classic, Hello? 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 As if their phone suddenly dropped out. Can't really blame them, though. Not when I pull off the exact same maneuver myself regularly. Before long, after a short break that featured a long stare into the mirror, I resumed calling these people. The night culminated in a wonderful conversation with a man named Everett. By that time, as a means of getting my mind right before each and every call, I had fallen into a trap of assuming the demographic of whoever I was calling based solely on their name and area code. Put plainly, I was racially profiling. If I saw a Detroit area code with a less traditional name, then I began to assume that I'd be speaking with a black voter. And in most cases, honestly, I was right. And that did help me jump into each conversation with a little bit more context than had I gone in with a clean slate each time. Now, I'm not encouraging racial profiling or anything of the sort. I'm just being honest about what I was observing myself doing. And since I had been pretty much batting a 1,000 with my assumptions, I began feeling super comfortable with the process, which is why I was particularly caught off guard when I was assigned a call to Everett from a rural Michigan area code. To be honest, I hadn't had many run-ins, maybe no run-ins ever, With anyone named Everett But I won't lie I first pictured an older white gentleman Think Wilford Brimley but without the diabetes And on top of my initial thought The area code simply confirmed what I would already suspected Everett was an old white dude And him being an old white dude Implied all sorts of things in the context of our impending discussion on presidential politics As you can imagine The system is calling Everett at this point, and before I could even gather my thoughts into a strategic approach, Everett answered. And right from the get-go, my assumptions were clearly mistaken. Everett wasn't an old white guy at all. He was a gregarious black fella. And while this was a welcomed air on my part, my stress levels were nevertheless sent spiking. As I scrambled to adapt my premeditated approach, which to remind you was based solely on preliminary assumptions. Suddenly, any semblance of a groove that I had found was destroyed and replaced by me stammering something like, oh, 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 Hi, Everett. Uh, this is uh, Joe Biden. No, uh, oh, wait, sorry. I mean, this, this is Kirk Ross, and I'm calling on behalf of. Come on, Kirk, relax. Damn it. This guy's cool. Plus, you know he's voting blue. No pressure, man. Let's go. Hello, Everett. My name is Kirk Ross, and I'm a volunteer calling on behalf of. I'd rediscovered my confidence, sure. But before I could even finish the opening line, Everett chimed in. Listen, Kirk from the Democratic Party, I believe that Donald J. Trump is the best president this country has ever seen. And yes, I'm including Lincoln, and yes, I'm black. Whoa, 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 this couldn't be true, could it? But I had already adjusted my assumptions once when I learned that you weren't an old white guy, and now this? He continued as I frantically searched for my response. "Well, Well, sir, you are certainly entitled to your beliefs on the subject. In fact, I think it's awesome that you're passionate about a candidate. After all, all we can really ask for is participation. I heard nothing but a little rustling on the other end before I finished. But I can't urge you enough to reconsider your vote. <laughs> I got you good, didn't I? He said. I giggled back. You got me great. In fact, I just threw my computer to the ground in disgust, so let me go pick it up real quick. Everett was cracking up still, now turning to his girl to exclaim, This dude just told me he threw his computer down because of what I said. <laughs> we all howled with laughter for a few seconds. Before he came clean about his actual beliefs. Kirk, man, Trump is the worst. My wife and I already filled out our ballots and walked them personally down to the ballot box ourselves, just to be sure. I thanked Everett for his vote and told him that he was by far my favorite call of the night, which was true. Something that he relayed to his cackling wife. We all had one last laugh about it before ending our conversation. Without a doubt, that was my favorite call of the night. At least from a personal, social perspective. By the end of that 60-second call, I felt like Everett and I were old friends. And I bet he'd say the same. But I wasn't proud of all the prejudgment I had caught myself in, nor was I proud that I spent so much of the night making assumptions and then moving forward as if they were right. In the story with Everett, despite efforts to preserve my prior beliefs, my own personal bias was obliterated twice over. First, when I was surprised to learn that Everett wasn't white. And then again, when I was shocked, To hear that Everett was so fond of Trump It was at this point That I began thinking of doing today's show On confirmation bias But I wasn't quite sold Fast forward a few hours To when Jessica and I were in bed Taking down some horrific details From our favorite bedtime true crime podcast It's more relaxing than it sounds We were on the precipice Of falling into deep sleep When three Grand Rapids fire trucks Came barreling down our quiet street We shot up to investigate it. First, to ensure that it wasn't our place on fire, but secondly, to figure out what place was. As far as we could tell, no major house fire was visible. No smoke was in the air. It was, by all accounts, nothing more than a false alarm. At most, I quipped to Jess, partially joking, but partially not, someone's cat's probably just stuck up in a tree. We gawked for a few more minutes before closing our curtains and trying once more to get back to sleep. Jessica and I opined as to what we thought was going on across the street. I had already dug my heels in the sand and committed to the absurd idea that this giant crew of firefighters was there to rescue a tree-climbing feline. As devil's advocate, Jessica wagered that it was a small kitchen fire in the rear of the home across the street. We agreed that we'd put our curiosity to bed for now, but that we'd confirm what really happened the next day. Ah, sleep, I thought. That's when the chainsaw fired up. Our bed shook with laughter from both of us as we tried to make light of just how unbelievably loud the chainsaw was. Jessica bragged, told you it was something serious, they're using a chainsaw. I replied, no, 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 they're just using the chainsaw to bring down the tree and rescue Mr. Whiskers. We giggled and tried again to hit the hay. One, once again, we were startled into laughter, this time by the activation of the fire hydrant that resides no more than 30 feet from our pillows. This disruption was even louder than the last and therefore even more hilarious. Jessica stated with certainty this time, fire hydrant, fire hose, clearly a real fire in that house, huh? I couldn't resist. No, 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 the cat's down and the poor little fellow's thirsty. They're just giving him a drink of water. Now clearly I was half-jokingly defending this far-fetched position that I had formed early on in the ordeal. Just as Jessica was defending hers. But this whole scenario was so perfectly aligned with the ideas that I had already begun noodling after I hung up with Everett a few hours earlier. What are the odds, I thought to myself. What are the odds that as I was actively considering writing an episode on confirmation bias, a scene like this would unfold and verify precisely what I was already looking to write about. It's almost as if I was looking at the cat slash house fire situation through a bias lens. One that would confirm what I'd already begun to invest mental energy into. It's almost as if I was confirming my bias that today's show should be about confirmation bias. Clearly, that is exactly what happened here. Not really a huge deal, is it? So what is there for all of us to take away from this one today? Well, first, I think we must all acknowledge the truism that each of us is inherently biased. For 100% of us, it is 100% true. Even true to you, mister, I don't see color. When people say they don't see color, they're either colorblind or they're lying. Secondly, if we all agree that we're all biased, then we must also acknowledge that we're all wrong about things. And thirdly, if we're all wrong about things, then we must work hard at challenging our beliefs so as to grow our personal perspectives. It's so much easier to rest on our laurels when it comes to things we already know. It's easier to listen to the same music you've been listening to since college. It's easier to hang out with the same friends that we've known since before that. And I'm not suggesting these are bad things, by the way. In fact, I'll be knocking off both of those things tomorrow when I sit down with Michael Morosi. For an interview for the show. And we'll probably chat about old music. Familiar is good. But unfamiliar is good too. We're living increasingly ambiguous lives. Through an impossibly meta lens. A lens that in many ways has been curated into focus. Through social media platforms. The very foundation of which. Are based on algorithmic confirmation bias. We all know about the echo chamber. That Facebook can become if we let it. Look it's in all of our hard-coded DNA to employ confirmation bias. So on a subconscious level, it's unavoidable. But what we must do with this subconscious bias, each and every time it moves into our conscious minds, it's incumbent upon each of us to fight the urge to take the path of least resistance. So next time we're feeling a little confirmation bias coming on, we must consciously engage a sort of rejection bias, where we explicitly look for errors in our own beliefs, hope for them even. That doesn't mean we shouldn't run away if we were to discover a lion in our foyer. But whenever possible, we must consider the possibility that we're wrong. Because we almost certainly are. Thanks so much for listening. Please leave a five-star written review on Apple Podcasts if you're willing. Please also check out the YouTube channel where this particular episode and many more are available with HD footage. Peace out, y'all. R. I you iatekone